The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. It's exciting uh, as a church, I don't know how many of y'all are aware, I hope you are, uh, when we talk about doing ministry, and we talk about even things like the building that we're in the middle of and all of those types of things, everything we're doing is geared around reaching people. And as a church, we obviously have a goal of reaching a lot of people here on this island in Bluffton and the surrounding community, but we also uh, get to be partners with many people who are overseas in different settings, whether ministering, encouraging missionaries, whatever the opportunity might be. But we get to be a part of that, and I hope that excites you uh, because it's something that, that's a great blessing. So this morning, as we turn to the Word of God, let me open us in prayer. Father, I pray this morning as we look at this topic of sanctification that you would give us grace to see you and to see you clearly. I pray that you would give us grace to see the beauty of what your son has done on the cross for us. And I pray that you would give us grace to be attentive to your spirit, which indwells us. Help us not to miss what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, uh, you can flip to Romans chapter 7. Hopefully you have one. It'll be up on the screens as well. But this morning, obviously, Bill's out of town, uh, getting a little break before the new year, and I'm stepping in for him. It's always a privilege to do that. And our topic today, as we continue in the series on longings, is going to be the longing for freedom. The longing for freedom. And what I mean by the longing for freedom is this. We're going to piggyback on where Bill left off last week, and, and the longing he focused on the, the theological word, if you will, for it was the longing for justification. And it was this idea of desiring to be made right with God and what that means and what that looks like. And today, we're going to look at the next part of that, and your other theological word, if you're into that, is sanctification. And that's simply the desire to see how that plays out in life. If you're going to break those two words down, never start a sermon with justification and sanctification, but I'm doing it for a reason. Um, If you're going to break those down, justification means to be made right with God. It's our status as Christians before the Father right now. And sanctification is the process in which we play that out on this earth. In other words, even though we have this perfect standing before God, we're not perfect people. We struggle, we battle, we mess up, we blow it. Anybody messed up already this morning? If your hand doesn't go up, you're lying right now so you can raise it. The, the idea is that's, that's the state in which we find ourselves. And the reason I want to state that ahead of time is because I'm going to read you a passage, and this is a tough passage. It's from Romans 7, and it goes into the first couple of verses of chapter 8. And it gets into that internal struggle. And, and read along and think along as I read these words, because it's easy to get lost in the midst of what Paul's saying here. Starting in chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin 
that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, if I just stop there, and, and one of the commentators, I love it, said that was either written by Paul or Dr. Seuss. And, and as you read that, it, it, it's so wordy. And if I stop there and I say, think on that, most people would say, there's something going on with Paul, and he's not doing what he wants, but he wants to, and he can't, and somehow he is, but he's not. And, and, and you get all wrapped up in the wording and the verbiage of it that we often kind of overlook the big thought of what Paul's getting at when it relates to this idea of justification and this idea of sanctification. Think about it like this. If you read the beginning of Genesis, go back and read Genesis 1 and 2 in the beginning of chapter 3, what you have is this beautiful picture of Eden. You have this amazing garden, and inside this garden you have Adam and Eve, and you have a relationship of complete wholeness with God. You have God literally walking in the garden with them. There's no sin. There's no brokenness. Everything is full and complete. Now you fast forward, you go to Revelation, get to the last couple chapters of Revelation at the end of your Bible, and when you open those books up, you have this picture of this new heaven and new earth. And inside the new heaven and new earth, what you find is that you have God on his throne in this picture of wholeness, of restoration between God's people and him on his throne. And these are two amazing pictures in Scripture, but if I asked you this, okay, now what happens in between? Everybody knows once you've, if you've studied the Bible at all, you get to Genesis 3, you have this picture of sin, and you read the rest of the book until you get to the end of Revelation, and you have a continual picture of sin and brokenness and heartache and all the consequences and realities that are connected with sin. And if you think about it in reality, whether you're a Christian or not, go read the newspaper. It doesn't take more than two or three headlines to find out this person killed this person, this person stole this, this happened. And and what you see immediately is the brokenness in our world. In other words, we live in a fallen, broken world. And the idea of sanctification that we're going to talk about today and where this ties into what we're moving towards is simply this. Every Christian, if you're desiring to follow Christ at all with your life, will have an internal battle going on. And the reason you're going to have an internal battle is because of this. Yes, when we put our faith in Christ, we're justified. We're made right before God. We have Christ's righteousness in our place before God. That's our standing right now. However, in this world, the spirit is in us, but the flesh is still there as well. And so there's this internal battle between flesh and spirit. This is what Paul's getting at. I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. It's, I know what I ought to do. I know what I want to desire, but I keep making this choice, and there's a battle going on. Hopefully this morning, as you think about that battle, you can at least relate to it. I'll throw out this little red flag ahead of time. If you've experienced or are experiencing no battle in your life, 
that is a red flag. Because it either means one of two things. It either means I've got it all together, I'm perfect. Which, okay, all, all sorts of problems there. Or it means I have just given up and I don't care. It's too much, it's too hard. You've been told somewhere along the line the lie that the Christian life is easy. That it's easy, it's simple. You just say a prayer and everything's great. How many of you have experienced, say a prayer and everything's great? Probably not. What you've experienced is you put your faith in Christ and you have the standing before God. But what we're going to deal with today is, so how does that work itself out every day? What does that look like in our interactions and in our walking each day? Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. When all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with, the, with every available weapon against the flesh. In other words, he looked at it and he saw it as life is a battle. The spirit at work within us and the flesh, the sin that dwells within us, fighting against each other. And so today, when we talk about what is sanctification, I don't want you to get lost in the theological verbiage and let it fly over your head. What I want you to do is think about, this is going to be incredibly practical to how we live and make choices every day. So if you're an outline person, I'll give you the outline. Um, Three points here today. First one is this, our confused state. Second point, our present battle. And the third point, our real victory. So point one, our confused state. Let me read Starting in verse 14, it says this. For we know that the law is spiritual, that I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Let me just stop there. We know that the law is spiritual, meaning the law of God. The law of God, by the way, in this passage is going to be at certain points, and we're not going to dig into all of it. It's going to mean the Ten Commandments. Other points, it's going to be the general principles of God. It's going to be this guideline concept. But what we know is, however it's being referred to, The law of God is holy, it's perfect, it's right, it's spiritual, is the way Paul describes it. But, and here's the phrase for us, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. The illusion he's getting at of sold under sin is simply this, sold as a slave to sin. What Paul's acknowledging at the very beginning of this passage is that he is a slave to sin. He understands the depth of his brokenness. Bill talked on this last week. You don't have to go further. Think about David. Think about David and his great sin that everyone has studied at some point in your life. He kills, you know, basically, we'll just say, he has a, commits adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband killed, and then he covers it up, and everything's trucking along, and he's smoothly, you know, covered all of his tracks. Everything's gone along nicely, and suddenly this one man comes and confronts David. It's Nathan, the prophet, and he calls him out on his sin. And David's got two options. David can... Have Nathan killed, dispelled, taken care of, and it's done. Forget it. Or David can respond to what Nathan said. Go read Psalm 51 today, and you're going to see a broken response to sin. You know, when David in Psalm 51.5 says something like, Surely I have been a sinner from birth, a sinner from the time my mother conceived me. What he's acknowledging is, I'm sinful, not because I make bad choices, but my very nature, the core of my being is broken before God. You know, one way of thinking about it um, is, uh, it's been put this way, before he was exclusively a sinner, when Paul gave his life to Christ, he will be exclusively a saint. Now, he is currently a sinner saint. In other words, the way this commentator is describing Paul is this, he was fully a sinner. That was all he was. That was what David's talking about 
broken man that I am, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But then when you put your faith in Christ, the way the Bible describes us is we are now saints. We've been given this new status before God. We've been given this new life. And yet, in this life, what I find is I will be fully a saint and no longer a sinner one day, but right now, I'm a sinner saint. Meaning, I'm a saint, that's who I am before God, but I sin all the time. I mess up. David and Paul both understood that. And then Paul goes on to say, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. And what Paul's doing here, by the way, is not absolving himself of his sin, saying, ah, it's not my, not my battle, it's not my problem, it's not me doing it. Paul's describing the nature of his sin. It's a war. He keeps finding himself stepping into puddles he doesn't want to go into, making choices he doesn't want to do, and yet he's choosing to go there. You know, Jonathan Edwards, if you want some deep reading today, go look up Jonathan Edwards' treatise on the will of God and the will of man. And on the will of man side, uh, here's a couple of quotes. He says this, we always choose according to our greatest inclination that we have at any given moment. We choose sin in any given situation because we want sin. And what Edwards was getting at was this idea, and, and then you can get into all the philosophy behind it, but his idea was we are always going to choose what we want to choose. Now, someone may look at me and they may say, I'm never going to choose certain things I don't want to choose, but that's not true. And here's an illustration of it. Somebody asked one time, you know, what if somebody put a gun to my head and said, denounce Christ or I'm going to shoot you? You know, I'm not choosing what I want. And Edward's response to that would be, well, if you denounce Christ, you are choosing what you want because at that moment in your time and in your life, your highest value is living versus living for Christ and vice versa. And the idea being, Paul's not excusing his sin. Paul's owning his sin. He's describing the battle. And if you know Paul very well, and as you go further into this, what you find very quickly is that Paul views it as God has done so much for me and I've done so little for God. And this is Paul, by the way, missionary, gave his life up, traveled the world, shared the gospel, wanted people to come to know the Lord. That was his heartbeat. But he viewed it as, I've done so little for God. And even deeper than that, by the way, if you really dig into Paul's writings, you're going to see Paul saying things and, and you know, alluding to things like, even the good I've done is tainted by my sin. Think about it. How often, let me throw out this challenge to us, how often, even in Christian circles, do we do good things with sinful motives? For instance, worship. In this upcoming weekend, I'm going to take a bunch of high school kids and we're going to go to Atlanta and we're going to go to the Passion Conference. And this is this fabulous college-age conference where you know 20,000 college kids will come together, hear some speakers and worship God. A couple years ago, John Piper was there and he gave a talk. And his talk, the title was, What's at the Bottom of Your Joy? And the heart of what Piper was getting at, and this is the heart of what we do sometimes, is... How often, even in our worship, do we worship God because it makes us feel good about ourselves? Because it gives us something versus because it gives glory to God. Or even in our giving. How often in life do we give and we give generously? But how often do we do it with motives in which it's because it makes us feel good about ourselves versus it's solely about God and his kingdom? And I could go on with illustration after illustration. And the idea is our lives are tainted with sin. And to understand the rest of what Paul's talking about, we need to get the depth of how tainted we are with sin. And Paul, 
you know, as he reasons through it, he kind of leaves us with these thoughts, and I'll ask these questions. Can you in any way relate to what Paul is saying here? And more specifically, do you find yourself, here's the key phrase, disgusted with your sin? Because what I notice a lot in my life is that I don't like my sin, but I often don't hate my sin. I know it's wrong and I know it's not good and I keep going back to this or that or the other thing, but I don't despise and hate and find disgust in it. My kids make fun of me all the time because when we're eating around the table, there's certain things I don't like to eat and usually it's anything green. And so when I'll eat like broccoli, broccoli is one of those things I'll never understand and for the broccoli lovers enjoy it. But when I eat it, my girls love to watch me because I always make fun of the way I flare my nose when I'm eating because there's just like this disgust with a big chug of water afterwards because I'm trying to get it down because I don't like it. But when I think about that comparison and I flip that and I say, how do I feel about my sin? When was the last time, not only broken, but disgusted with my sin and with what I do? You know, often in Christian circles, here's a reality. It's not a good one, but I think it's a true one. We're often very, very good at pointing out other people's sin and of identifying other sin because it's easy to note their sin and deflect our sin. Because when I note someone else's or this group's sin or that person's sin, suddenly my sin doesn't look quite so bad. And the reality is others aren't the standard. Comparison isn't the standard. The law is the standard. The law is spiritual. And our sin should lead us to disgust. It should lead us to a place of absolute brokenness before God. But that's the confused state Paul finds himself in. Now, our present battle, he goes on to describe it a little more. Verses 17 through 20, he says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What Paul's describing here in deep theological terms is what people would call the now but not yet. And the now but not yet is simply this. Right now, if you put your faith in Christ, you have status before God. You have Christ's righteousness. But not yet do you have that fully in the sense of our sanctification on this earth. It's still a process of becoming more like Christ on this earth, even though that's who we are before the Father. Another way of saying it, before becoming a Christian, Paul was in complete bondage. After becoming a Christian, he is in total freedom, and yet the way he describes it is he settles for his old state of bondage. C.S. Lewis, the quote everyone's heard, says it this way, Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, we are far too easily pleased. And the idea being, and the question I want us to dig into for a second is this. Why do we settle? If you know what is best, and you know what is great, then why settle for what is so little, and for what leaves us empty and wanting more? I'm going to give you three theories on this. Three things, I think, as to why we settle so often when so much more is offered. Here's one theory. It's simply this. I think sometimes we're uninformed. 
And what I mean by uninformed is not we haven't heard the gospel, not we haven't said a prayer, but I think sometimes we don't understand our identity in Christ. We don't understand the status that Christ has given us. We don't understand how the Father looks down on us. We don't understand the fact that we are saints. We don't understand the fact that we are perfect in His sight. We don't understand the fact that we now have the Spirit living inside of us. We miss all those things. And part of the reason we miss it, by the way, is that how often do we pick this book up and read it? How often do we even know how God describes us, how God sees us? So often we're so caught up in our busyness that we lose sight of how God sees us. We're uninformed in that sense. Another reason I think we settle is I think sometimes it goes to we're unbelieving. And what I mean by unbelieving is simply this. This is where pride rears its ugly head. Anybody in here, don't raise your hand, anybody in here ever get to that moment where you looked at God and you knew something you had done in your past and you couldn't honestly believe that God could forgive you for that He could take all that, but he couldn't take this from me. We live with a sense of guilt that inhibits us and keeps us from moving forward in our walk with Christ because we're burdened by things that have already been taken care of at the cross. On the other side of that, I think our pride is sometimes it's the total opposite. Sometimes it's, well, I've compared myself to so many people and I've been in the church so long. I'm I'm right here. God's right here. Jesus bridges the gap, but I'm pretty good. No one would ever use those words, by the way. But in our thoughts, we do it all the time. I'm pretty good, and so Christ has died for me, and Christ has done these things for me, absolutely, but we don't see how much he's done for us. We don't see the depth of what he's done for us, and therefore, we don't choose to make Christ our greatest desire. We choose all the other little things that are offered to us. You know, a third possibility, and this is probably the one that gets most of us, is the idea that why do we settle? Because we're comfortable. Anybody in here like to be made uncomfortable? No. Yeah, same thing, first service. Everybody's like, hmm. Uh, I'd be like, if I called one of you up right now and said, come share your testimony, I won't do that. But if I did that, somebody in this room would get really uncomfortable really quickly because they would have to get up and go out of their comfort zone and come do something that they weren't expecting to do. And when it comes to why we settle, here's, here's a real reality for us, especially in America in 2014. We're very comfortable in our Christianity. We're very comfortable in our routines. We're very comfortable when things are of the norm. But how many of us are willing to step out of that discomfort or out of that comfort into discomfort? How many of us are willing to be stretched beyond our own ability? And by the way, here's the great irony of this. The reason we like comfort is because we live under this fake reality where we think we have control when we're comfortable. The reality is we have control of nothing. God has control of everything. But we feel like when we step over here, I lose all of my controls, and therefore I'm going to be stretched, so I'm not sure I'm ready to do that. And if you're going to follow Christ in the way Paul's talking about here, and you're going to make your ultimate desire Christ, you're going to be uncomfortable. It's going to take breaking those old patterns. It's going to take stepping out of that zone into a whole new area that's going to stretch us. But all of us in this room, no matter what we think on this, the reason we have this battle is, it's a battle over what our greatest desire is inside us. Is it our flesh or the spirit that's going to dictate that desire? And that leads us to the last part, our real victory. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
Stop there for one second, a little side note. Evil lies close at hand. In this particular passage, is not referring to the devil. By the way, the devil is real. Demons are real. There's a whole spiritual realm. If you read the Bible, you see that all over. However, we're sinful enough. We don't need the devil to blow it. Everybody in agreement on that? We, we mess up enough on our own. We don't need the devil made me do it excuse because we're going to do it on our own. And when he's talking about evil lies close at hand, he's talking about that sinful nature that he's wrestling with in this passage. Verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says this, I delight in the law of God. Two laws mentioned here, by the way. Verse 22, the law of God, that general revelation of God, his good and perfect will. And, And I'll say this, divine law is not dead principles or means to salvation. And listen to this phrase. Rather, it's the ruling principle for the expression of Paul's gratitude. In other words, when I say I delight in the law of God, I'm not talking about dead principles from thousands of years ago. I'm certainly not talking about I delight in the law because it's a way I earn my salvation. When I say I delight in the law of God, and when Paul says it specifically in this passage, what he's talking about, and let me read that again, he views it as the ruling principle for the expression of his gratitude. Paul understood that, why do I obey? Why do I seek to live this thing out? Why not just pray the prayer, fire insurance, life is good? Why do I do it? Because if I understand grace at all, I want to live a life of gratitude. When we pass around those little baskets, and why do you drop money in it? Hopefully it's not to earn favor or to check it off a box. Hopefully it's an expression of gratitude because you see the beauty and glory of Christ. So as you think about this, and you think about the specifics of the law in that sense, it makes complete sense that Paul would say, I delight in the law of God. It's like a kid and his parents. You know, one of the great things, we have tons of little kids, so Christmas time is magical at our house. And after all the presents are open, the one thing that happens nonstop for a couple days is this. Daddy, watch this. Daddy, come see this. Daddy, I want to show you this. Daddy, I want to do this. Daddy, come here. We play this. And the idea is when all those daddies, and it's, it's so beautiful and exciting, it's all of the children want to earn daddy's favor, and not earn it, but they want to bring, and here's the real key, delight to me, and it's a beautiful thing, and if you think about your kids, you've probably seen the same things when they were that age, and the reality, and I'll go even further with it, I'll I'll use Cress, my son, as an example. Cress is my oldest son. Cress is this awesome kid who every day I come home wants to play football and is just excited all the time. The beautiful thing about having multiple kids is you learn really quickly The way you discipline one isn't the way you discipline another because they're not all the same. And when Cress comes and he does something, all I have to do with Cress is this. Cress, come here now. If I raise my voice and I get serious, you know what he does immediately? Drops his shoulders, puts his head down, and tears start flowing just about every time as he walks over. And it's beautiful and sweet and really pathetic all at the same time. But he comes over... And and it's this beautiful picture of him. And the reason he's broken is not me. It's because he knows what he did caused me to not delight in him. By the way, I have another son, Wes. I could say the same thing. He starts laughing and runs off, okay? So it doesn't work that way magically for all of them. He needs a hard rod. But the whole idea is this. The same should be true of us. When we talk about the law of God, we should find delight in it because brings delight to our Father, 
to see our lives being lived out as expressions of gratitude towards him. And then verse 24, Paul says, wretched man that I am, continues that concept of how broken he is. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the verse. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Shortened version of that. In Christ, from God the Father, through the Spirit working in our lives, we now have freedom. We now no longer are bound to our sin. We're no longer bound to our guilt. We're no longer bound to our shame. We're no longer bound to the junk of this world that even though it looks so appealing, we all know leaves us so empty. We now have a freedom that is not there without Christ. And so today, as you think on this, I'm going to read you a little excerpt. This is talking about, hopefully you've read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan at some point in your life. If you haven't, read it. Beautiful picture of the Christian journey. And this is somebody describing it. It says this, John Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress describes Interpreter's House, which Pilgrim entered during the course of his journey to the celestial city. The parlor of the house was completely covered in dust. And when a man took a broom and started to sweep, he and the others in the room began to choke from the great clouds of dust that were stirred up. The more vigorously he swept, the more suffocating the dust became. The interpreter ordered a maid to sprinkle the room with water with which the dust was quickly washed away. The interpreter explained to Pilgrim that the parlor represented the heart of an unsaved man that the dust was original sin, the man with the broom was the law, and the maid with the water was the gospel. His point was that all the law can do with sin is to stir it up. Only the gospel of Christ can wash it away. And this morning, I don't know where all of this lands with you. You may be thinking it's Christmas, New Year's is coming, I really just want to go enjoy my holiday. I'm trying to ruin that for you, by the way. Not in the sense of I want you to walk out of here with your heads down and tears flowing, although that may not be a bad thing, but in the sense that I want us to walk out of here turning our eyes away from ourselves. You know, some of us in this room, I'm sure when we hear this sermon and we hear this topic, you know, the reality is we're just missing the battle. There's no battle going on. One because we just don't know Christ. And if you're in that category, I plead with you to look at who Christ is and what he's done for you. Look at the gospel and the restoration being made right the way it was in the beginning. Some of us, we don't have a battle. It's not because we don't know Christ. It's because we just don't care enough. I prayed the prayer. I really do believe it. But I just want to live. And my encouragement to you is don't give up in the sense of you will be empty. All of the fleeting things this world can offer that we find greater delight in in Christ in the end will leave us broken and empty. There's no way around it. And we all know deep down inside that's the truth. Some of us in this room, it lands with us in this sense. I believe it, but I'm kind of taking advantage of grace right now. Meaning 
I believe it, but I'm kind of just doing my thing, and I like doing my thing, and I'm happy doing my thing. Please don't interrupt my thing. It's a wonderful thing. And, and what I will say to you, and if you're in that category, if you're taking advantage of grace, you don't understand grace. Translation, go back and read the first couple chapters, 5 and 6 of Romans, and you'll see where Paul deals with this. Grace doesn't abound so that we can sin more. Grace abounds so that we can live lives for the very purpose for which we were created, Genesis 1 and 2, and the purpose for which we will end, Revelation 20 through 22. It's that kind of grace that transforms our lives and gives us the opportunity to live for him now. And some of us in this room, last category I'll throw out is simply this. We find ourselves fighting the battle, but the way we're fighting it is this. We're working harder and harder. We're with the broom sweeping furiously and dust is coming up everywhere to the point of suffocating us and we are coughing and we're exhausted and we just want to break because we're tired of trying to fight the battle on our own. And if you're in that category, my encouragement to you is this kind of battle is different than every other kind of battle. On this earth, you have to go out and do and be and accomplish in order to have success in a battle on this earth, by the way, that has already been done for you in Christ. Our response is not to work harder, although those Christian disciplines are crucial. Our response is to stop. Stop all the trying. Stop all the working. And step back and look again at the beauty of Christ. Look again at the beauty of the gospel and realize, like we said in verse 2, we now are set free. It's a lot about realizing who we are. It's like a slave in the 1860s after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation and slaves were then free. If I hadn't heard it, if I hadn't embraced that truth, I would continue on in the same rut I was in. If I knew that truth, I now have new freedom to go and do and be. And so for us today, my encouragement is this. There needs to be a battle going on and I would love to say it'll go away. It's not going to go away. When you see Christ one day, it'll go away. But in the meantime, we're going to be like Paul. We're going to find ourselves doing what we don't want, not doing what we do want, and we're going to see this wrestling. But my encouragement in the middle of the wrestling is simply this. If you're trying to do it on your own, you will be defeated. You simply need to recognize who Christ is and what he's done. And the more you become captivated with the beauty of the gospel, here's the beauty, the more your desires will change. Remember Edwards? You're going to choose what you want deepest down inside. The more we see the beauty of Christ, the more we'll make the choices that are pleasing to God because that will be our heart's desire. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this truth. I thank you so much for your love and your work in our life. And I pray, Lord, as we consider not just who we are before you right now, but as we consider who it is that you are making us to be, that you would give us grace in this life to see your spirit at work, to embrace the beauty of what your son has done for us, and ultimately, Lord, to live lives of inexpressible gratitude that bring glory to you, our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.